Hello, Hello everyone. everyone. My name is Emily Vahari. My name is Dejanira Molina. And my name is Martina Lopez. Today we will be talking about Sentinel Wrap and food products that may reduce food contamination in the near future. We will be discussing the latest CDC reports of food contamination, food safety, E. coli, food processing and production, Sentinel Wraps, and other biosensor methods used today. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention provides annual reports on foodborne outbreaks based on reports provided by county and state health departments. Government agencies are responsible for setting food safety standards, conducting inspections, ensuring that standards are met, and maintaining an enforcement program to deal with those who do not comply with standards. The CDC estimates that one in six Americans get sick from contaminated foods or beverages each year, and 3,000 people die. The CDC uses a program called PulseNet to detect recent outbreaks. PulseNet uses DNA fingerprinting of bacteria to detect local and multi-state outbreaks. This can allow researchers to identify outbreaks early and take care of them before they get out of hand. And there is at least one PulseNet laboratory in every state. So a recent food contamination outbreak occurred between June and July 2018. A meat production company in Colorado recalled approximately 133,000 pounds of bee products that were packaged on June 21st of 2018, which also may have been contaminated with E. coli. The outbreak was investigated after 17 illnesses were reported in one death. The patients consumed beef from various stores that were supplied by the Colorado company. Stool samples were taken in order for diagnosis and patients were given antibiotics and hydration treatments. Few patients lasted longer and experienced kidney failure. So what's the government role in food safety? The Food Safety and Inspection Service is responsible for ensuring that the nation's supply of meat, poultry, and eggs is safe, as well as correctly labeled and packaged. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration is responsible for protecting consumers against unsafe foods or fraudulently labeled products. The FDA is responsible for foods other than meat, poultry, and eggs, and the CDC works with these two government agencies to conduct outbreak surveillance and also help control the spread. So E. coli, listeria, and salmonella are the common bacteria that cause food contamination and outbreaks. E. coli and salmonella are both in the family of Enterobacteriaceae. Enterobacteriaceae is a family of bacteria that pertains to the intestines. E. coli! We will be mainly focusing on E. coli for our discussion. E. coli is different because it can live in our intestines without causing any issues, but there are some types of E. coli that can cause severe illness in humans. Sugar toxin-producing strains of E. coli are responsible for most food-related E. coli infections. So let's get into the roots of E. coli to better understand the bacteria. Escherichia coli, or E. coli, is the most common and important member of the genus Escherichia. Escherichia is a genus of gram-negative, non-spore-forming, facultatively anaerobic, rod-shaped bacteria from the family Enterobacteriaceae. If we break the term down, enero means pertaining to the intestine. Bacteria is what most people know, a microscopic living organism. 
The suffix ce pertains to family. So in other words of the description in Escherichia, it is a genus of bacteria that does not require oxygen for growth, but can grow in the presence of oxygen if needed. The gram-negative and rod shape are results from methods that researchers use to differentiate bacteria. However, as a rule of thumb, gram-negative bacteria are more dangerous than gram-positive because their outer membrane is often hidden by a capsule or slime layer, which hides the antigens of the cells and so acts as a camouflage. The human body recognizes a foreign body by its antigens. If they are hidden, it becomes harder for the body to detect the invader. That is why it is important to study and diagnose any infections caused by E. coli. E. coli is associated with a variety of diseases, including gastroenteritis and extraintestinal infections such as UTIs, meningitis, and sepsis. Large numbers of E. coli are present in the GI tract. Although these organisms can be opportunistic pathogens when the intestines are perforated and the bacteria enter the peritoneal cavity, most E. coli that cause GI and an extraintestinal disease do so because they have acquired specific virulence. Oh. Virulence. <laughs> virulence. <laughs> Factors encoded on plasmids or in bacteriophage DNA. This might sound very complicated, but to make it easier to understand, E. coli is a bacteria that would take advantage of an opportunity not normi normally available, such as a weak immune system or the intestines that were damaged or pierced, and it would successfully enter the layer that's between the peritoneal, well, parietal peritoneum, my apologies, and, which is the layer that surrounds the abdominal wall, and the visceral peritoneum, the layer that surrounds the internal organs. However, E. coli are very common bacteria in the, in the gastrointestinal tract and part of the normal bacteria flora. But some E. coli strings are able to produce a toxin that would produce a serious infection. The effectiveness of E. coli as a pathogen is illustrated by the fact that the bacteria are, number one, the most common gram-negative rods isolated from patients with sepsis, number two, responsible for causing more than 80% of all community-acquired UTIs as well as many hospital-acquired infections, and number three, a prominent cause of gastroenteritis. Most infections are endogenous, that is, the E. coli that are part of the patient's normal microbial flora are able to establish infection when the patient's defenses are compromised. As recalled, there are many E. coli strains that have different causes and effects. Most of the strains are common in poor developing countries. Due to our topic, we'll be talking about one important strain that, strain that focuses closely on food contamination in the U.S., which is the shigatoxin-producing E. coli. Shigatoxin-producing E. coli, or STEC, as the name suggests, this E. coli strain is capable of producing shigatoxins with the potential to cause severe enteric and systemic disease in humans. Two major shigatoxin types, STX1 and STX2, have been associated with strains that cause human disease. STEC is a public health concern because of the potential for outbreaks and the risk of serious complication. It is estimated that these bacteria cause 73,000 infections and 60 deaths each year in the United States alone. Steck disease is most common in the warm months and the highest incidence is in children younger than five years. 
Most infections are acquired through consumption of fecally contaminated food and water. Sounds gross, huh? Well, we don't think about it much, but the main reservoir of E. coli strength is the grass-feeding animals such as cattle. Their meat might become contaminated by fecal matter due to poor processing methods during slaughter, and their feces might end up contaminating other foods such as milk, vegetables, and water. Ingestion of fewer than 100 bacteria can produce a disease and person-to-person spread may occur. Disease caused by STEC ranges from mild uncomplicated diarrhea to hemorrhagic colitis with severe abdominal pain and bloody diarrhea. Initially, diarrhea with abdominal pain develops in patients after three to four days of incubation. Vomiting is observed in approximately half of the patients, but a high fever is generally absent. Within two days of onset, disease is between 30% to 65% of patients progresses to a bloody diarrhea with severe abdominal pain. Completely resolu- a complete resolution of symptoms typically occurs after 4 to 10 days in most untreated patients. STEC can also cause hemolytic uremic syndrome, or HUS. HUS is a condition caused by the abnormal destruction of red blood cells. HUS has preferentially associated with the production of STX2, which has been shown to destroy glomerular endothelial cells. Damage to the endothelial cells leads to platelet activation and thrombin deposition, which results in decreased glomerular filtration and acute renal failure. In simpler terms, the damaged red blood cells clog the filtering system in the kidneys, which can lead to life-threatening kidney failure. HUS is a complication in 5 to 10% of infected children younger than 10 years. Resolution of symptoms occurs in uncomplicated disease after 4 to 10 days in most untreated patients. However, death can occur in 3 to 5% of patients with HUS. The most common prevention and treatment is antibiotic therapy. Yeah, it's just crazy that poop would cause all of these issues in your body. You know the saying, right? What? You are what you eat. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thank you. All right, so let's go in in more depth and talk about the bacteria detection methods. There will be a lot of information that sounds complicated, and this topic is one of them. However, we'll try our best to simplify the terms. Bacterial detection methods are important because it helps researchers to identify what kind of strain this bacteria is, where it might have been originated, why did it grow there, and how can the patient be treated. The preferred method to detect STEC from patients is to test stool specimens directly for the presence of shigatoxin by use of commercial immunoassays or molecular tests for the shigatoxin 1 and 2 genes. These tests are rapid and sensitive. In laboratories, there are other methods such as bacterial counting, immunological analysis, and nucleic acid sequence-based amplification. Numerous procedures in biology and medicine require that cells be counted. The concentration of bacteria, viruses, and other pathogens in blood or bodily fluids can reveal information about the progress of an infectious disease and about how a person's immune system is dealing with the infection. Knowing the cell concentration is important in molecular biology experiments in order to adjust the amount of reagents and chemicals applied to the experiment. So how does it work? 
We have all seen movies where a lab technician lifts a petri dish over her head but under the light and then suddenly looks at the camera as if she just discovered a cure. Well, researchers use the petri dish or agar plates in order to get pure colonies of bacteria. Bacterial counting is based on the number of colonies that have grown in the dish. This dish is placed on a hemocytometer which creates a volumetric grid that helps counting to be accurate on the number of particles in a cube and calculating the concentration of the entire sample. This method is usually the first start to detect what bacteria it is. Researchers also use different kind of dishes that have ingredients that may affect bacterial growth, which helps narrow down the kind of bacteria it is. This method is inexpensive. It takes about two or three days for preliminary identification. It is conventional method since false negative results may occur. I want to do a side comment though. <clears throat> you guys had to do colony counting, right? Yeah. In, in microbiology? Yeah. Isn't it tedious? Um, like, yeah. Hard? Yeah, it it takes be. forever. I hate it. It yeah. definitely can be, yeah. <laughs> Alright. So, how do researchers detect the bacteria in food products such as meat, milk, and vegetables? Recently, different methods with high sensitivity and specificity have been developed to overcome the limitations of conventional methods for the detection and identification of foodborne pathogens or bacteria. Rapid detection methods are important, particularly in the food industry, as they are able to detect the presence of pathogens in raw and processed foods immediately. Generally, rapid detection methods are categorized into nucleic acid-based, biosensor-based, and immunological-based methods. Nucleic acid-based methods operate by detecting specific DNA or RNA sequences in the target pathogen. This is done by hybridizing the target nucleic acid sequence to a synthetic oligonucleotide, which is complementary to the target sequence. Oligonucleotide usually refers to a synthetic laboratory-made DNA or RNA strand. Toxin-related genes in E. coli can be detected by nucleic acid-based methods. <clears throat> the recent nucleic acid-based methods, methods described are simple polymerase chain reaction, PCR, multiplex pol polymerase chain reaction, mPCR, real-time quantitative polymerase chain reaction, qPCR, and nucleic acid sequence-based application, which is NASPA, and loop-mediated isothermic application, which is LAMP, and microarray technology. PCR is the most common molecular-based method for the detection of foodborne bacterial pathogens. It allows for the detection of a single bacterial pathogen that is present in food by detecting a specific target DNA sequence. PCR operates by amplifying a specific target DNA sequence in three stages. The first stage is to denature it which is when the double-stranded template DNA is heated to separate it into two single strands. The second stage is annealing, which is when the temperature is lowered to enable the DNA primers to attach to the template DNA. The third stage is extending, in which the temperature is raised and the new strand of DNA is made by the TAC polymerase enzyme. The PCR products are then visualized in gel electrophoresis. Unlike PCR, which requires thermocycling system, NASPA, or nucleic acid sequence-based application, is normally used for ampli amplification of RNA whereby the 
The single-stranded RNA template is converted into complementary DNA by the reverse transcriptase during the reaction. The products are usually detected by gel electrophoresis. However, gel electrophoresis is not cheap. It is expensive. Therefore, a new development of a real-time NASBA is used, which uses fluorescently labeled probes, which are molecular beacons, to detect the single-stranded RNA amplicones. This is commonly used to detect foodborne pathogens such as E. coli. And the last method that I would like to mention are the immunological-based methods. The detection of foodborne pathogens by immunological-based methods is based on antibody-antigen interactions, whereby a particular antibody will bind to its specific antigen. There are many more detection methods for foodborne pathogens, but we just wanted to explain specific methods since they will be relevant later in our talk when we discuss the discovery of a new packaging method that may prevent food contamination while being cost-effective. Alright, let's get into the meat production process. Let's start with packaging. Packaging plays a key role in the storage and distribution of raw meats, and there are many different packaging methods which have been used throughout time. These packaging methods include plastic bags, trays with gas permeable overwrap, vacuum packing, modified atmosphere packing, and antimicrobial packaging. While antimicrobial packaging is fairly new in the meat packing or packaging industry it is indefinitely or yeah it is definitely a revolutionary in the packaging process it would lead to a better shelf life for meats in the future sentinel wrap is a revolutionary because the wrap eliminates the guessing game when it comes to the freshness of perishable perishable food the standards of hygiene and temperature control have definitely improved over time and we'll discuss a couple of these modernized methods today there are receiving, storage, and handling procedures that food service workers must follow to ensure that they are selling quality meat with no contamination. The receiving procedures include ensuring all packages are sealed and not damaged, checking the temperature of the delivery truck storage area to ensure that it was cool enough upon arrival, storing and moving all of the meat products immediately to their correct storage coolers, ensuring fish, meats, and poultry are kept as far apart as possible, checking cooler temperatures daily and recording data according to the health department regulations, and ensuring cooler and freezer doors are kept closed at all times. These receiving procedures ensure that meats are handled in a safe and timely manner before being sold to customers. Meat must be packaged appropriately to avoid spoilage or freezer burn. Cut meat products are wrapped in permeable films on trays or vacuum packed after cutting and products for frozen storage should be vacuum packed or wrapped tightly in freezer paper to avoid freezer burn. Coolers must be maintained at 0 degrees to 2 degrees Celsius, which is about 32 to 35.6 degrees in Fahrenheit. This is the safest met or method in the temperature wise or the temperature range to store meat to as well as maintain flavor and moisture. Today, the most common meat cooling units are the blower coil type, which circulates cool air via coils. Fans then draw air from the floor up through the cold coils and then drives air back into the cooler area. Another important aspect of meat storage is maintaining the humidity in a frozen storage unit. 
to maintain the moisture <laughs> to maintain God, the moisture <laughs> 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 to maintain the moisture in meats Coolers need to maintain a humidity level of approximately 75 to 80 percent. If the humidity levels rise higher than that, moisture condenses onto the meat and appears on the walls of the storage room <laughs> and creates an optimal environment for bacterial growth. Modern meat coolers also have a defrost cycle to ensure that the blower coils are not covered in ice and can work properly. Once meat processing begins, a few steps must be taken to reduce any additional contamination. These steps include, do not allow products in any kind of box to come into contact with any work surface or floor. Properly clean and sanitize processing tables and cutting boards. Maintain separate cutting and processing areas for different types of meat. Clean and sanitize boards immediately after use. Thoroughly sanitize meat slicers and tenderizers between uses for different meats. These pose a severe risk for cross-contamination. If possible, process different raw meats on different days. This helps minimize the risk for cross-contamination. Taking all of these steps in receiving, storage, and handling of meats ensures that the products are safe for human consumption. These steps decrease the risk for contamination before the products get to the customers. Alright, let's get to the fun facts, or, uh, I mean, kind of gross, but, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nasty. <laughs> okay, so we have covered the latest CDC reports and how E. coli is one of the main foodborne pathogens that leads to food contamination. We also talked about bacterial detection methods such as colony counting, PCR, gel electrophoresis, and other nucleic acid-based methods that help researchers detect E. coli contamination in food packaging. We want to briefly explain some of the methods because they play a large role later in our talk. And lastly, we have talked about the methods and processes for food and meat packaging that may help you to understand what happens to your food before they are put on the shelves. Sounds like it's a simple and squeaky clean process, right? Well, it is, but things happen. Gross things. What do you think about rat hair in your peanut butter? We want to give you a little insight on food regulations from the FDA. So here are some fun facts about our food that we buy. According to the FDA, there are a list of levels of natural defects in food and present no health hazards for humans. This handbook lays out a maximum level of allowable contaminants for over 100 food items from allspice to wheat flours and before the item is considered contaminated and should not be consumed. These little critters could be introduced to the food before, during, or after the food was harvested or even during its processing and packaging. For example, in whole ginger, the FDA allows up to 3 milligrams or more of mammalian excreta per pound. So as an example, 3 milligrams of mouse poop per pound is the maximum amount that is allowed in whole ginger. <laughs> in peanut butter, which is my favorite craving snack, it is allowed an average of fewer than 30 insect fragments per 100 grams. That's about a quarter of your average jar. And you thought that you were buying smooth and not extra chunky.
I know Bear Grylls would just tell you that. It's alright, mate. It's just extra protein, mate. <laughs> the handbook states that it would be economically impractical to grow, harvest, or process raw products that are totally free of non-hazardous, naturally occurring, unavoidable defects. Now let's take a break on what may go in our food and begin to talk about the packaging material that is used to prevent food contamination. Before that, um, we had trouble finding like stuff that could be allowed in meats, right? Yeah. Yeah. On Facebook, I just watched a video of this guy pulling a worm out of a raw meat. And I was grossed out. I'm like, oh, this is not allowed. But after looking at the comments, people were saying that it's normal. It's normal to have worms in meat because people don't really realize it, mm -hmm. but when you cook it, it just looks like part of the meat. Yeah, it's That's disgusting, and it's really hidden by everyone. Yeah, I know. Like, I've yeah. been reading like 400 pages just to find anything, and I couldn't find Nothing. anything about meat. It's a secret. Yeah. And Be if, careful, everybody. Yeah, if you think about <laughs> it, I mean... The worms look exactly like the ground meat that you have, like, it's sick. just in your freezer. It makes me want to go vegetarian, but I like steak. Yeah. <laughs> really, yeah. Burgers, hot dogs, <laughs> you got it. I guess I don't want to know what's in it. <laughs> so let's talk about biosensors. Food contamination detection methods can be categorized as slow colony counting methods and immunology-based methods and rapids such as time temperature sensors and bacteria detecting sensors. With respect to an on-shelf food monitoring needs, conventional methods are not acceptable to be used since they are not integrated in food packaging and require several handling steps. Biosensors are the new generation of rapid detection methods that combine a bioreceptor with a detector that would capture and report presence of specific target. They have shown to have great potential for microbial pathogen detection and food production change and are continuously leading to a reliable and promising advances in food pathogen detection. Considering the recent improvements in biosensors over the last couple of decades, current technologies need to enhance in three major criteria so that biosensors are suitable for food packaging purposes, self-reliance, stability, and readability. Self-reliance of the sensors make them independent from complicated steps and other devices. Stability helps the sensors to endure the sh their shelf life and prevents bioreceptors from being released into the food source. Reliability makes replacing bioreceptors easy and having biosensors with different uh, functionalities possible. Biosensors developed based on liquid phase sensors or lab-on-chip devices cannot easily be used for real-time food examination after packaging without taking the sample out of the stock. Packaged foods such as meat, apple, juice are directly in touch with the surface of the containers or covers. Therefore, a real-time on surface sensing mechanism installed inside the food packaging and tracing of the pres uh, presence of pathogens inside the packaged food are needed to be examined food safety. Researchers have discovered the use of a variety of materials such as cooler paper, wraps, plastic, epoxy, and so on 
that may help prevent food contamination, but we all know that it still doesn't promise you that the meat or vegetables you just bought isn't contaminated. Well, mechanical and chemical engineers at McMaster collaborated with biochemists and developed a transparent test patch. This patch is called Sentinel Wrap and is printed with harmless molecules that can signal contamination as it happens. It will help consumers in the future to not just rely on the expiration date, nor just visualization. They claim that mass producing such a patch would be fairly cheap and simple. A food manufacturer could easily incorporate this into their production process. Sentinel wrap is coated on one side with microarray of droplets of modified DNA molecules known as DNAzymes. When pathogens such as E. coli come into contact with them, those DNAzymes fluorescent. Then using a smart device, users, users could be able to read that fluorescence to determine if the food inside the wrap was spoiled or contaminated. Sentinel patch is developed to be thin, transparent, flexible, and durable sensing surfaces based on DNAzymes biosensors. So, what are DNAzymes? A DNAzyme is a piece of a DNA where the sequence has been chosen to do a specific activity. In the Sentinel wrap, DNAzymes are used as a cleavage event in a presence of a specific target. Basically, the sequence was designed in order to detect a presence in a bacteria, then the DNA is going to be broken into a particular location, in which that's, that would lead the, like the fluorescent detection. The reason why they believe it would be cheap and simple to use is because DNA zines are simply just printed by an inkjet printer and it's uh, printed on the polymer wrap. They describe this event easily with a simple analogy. If you can imagine that the DNA zyme is like a rope and there are scissors that are going to cut that rope in a specific place, those scissors are the presence of E. coli. On one side of the rope, you have fluorescence molecule. On the other side, you have a, a quencher. If the rope is intact, they cancel each other out. But if you cut it with scissors, and for the example E. coli, the two pieces become separate, and now the fluorescence can be detected because the quencher is no longer attached. Let's go a little more in-depth on their experiment now. Their article is called Sentinel Wraps Real-Time Monitoring of Food Contamination by Printing DNAzyme Probes on food packaging. Authors and researchers are the following. And I do apologize for um, my anticipated mispronunciation of their names. Haney Yousefi, M. Mansour Ali, Hassan Ming Su, Carlos Felipe, and Tohid Didar. So, now let's get started. The hypotheses that the researchers were testing were as follows. The Sentinel wrap is a simple bacteria detecting tool. It is compatible with currently used packaging materials. It is stable during long-term detection. 
and it provides easily interpreted results for consumers. They split the experiment into four different sections. The first section tests for reliability, the second for packaging compatibility, the third for detection specificity and sensitivity, and the last for durability. They also decided to use contaminated foods and drinks, such as solid foods, like raw beef and sliced apples, and liquid food containers, like apple juice. The surfaces were incubated with food samples in rooms in room temperature for 10 days to test the stability of the sensors to simulate the on-the-shelf storage conditions. In the first section of the experiment, they tested for the reliability of the product to give accurate reports even when exposed to harsh environments. To do this, they first identified the DNA enzyme that they chose to be RFD-EC1, which they chose because of its known sensitivity to E. coli. This was the control of their experiment, or the one that they used as a reference for the variable that they are testing. The variable that they are using to test the product is a modified version of the RFD-EC1 DNA enzyme that is called RFD-EC1-COP. The COP portion stands for cyclo-olefin polymer. The modification was an addition of an amine group or a nitrogenous compound to one end of the DNA enzyme that can attach to the polymer. The cleavage site was then attached at the other end of the DNA enzyme in order to cause the release of the quencher after the cleavage reaction. That reaction would create an increase in the fluorescence signal that could then be monitored using a scanner, making it quick and easy to find out if there is E. coli, in, e. coli contamination in your product. One aspect of reliability they tested was immobilization. They wanted to know if the modified DNA enzyme would just wash off or rub off during the packaging process. They tested this by watching both the washing both the unmodified control DNA enzyme and the modified DNA enzyme with a two-minute water rinse and a one-minute buffer rinse. The results were that the unmodified DNA enzyme was washed away while the modified DNA enzyme was not. This suggests that the modified DNA enzyme had been successfully immobilized onto the polymer surface. They also tested the reliability of the DNA enzyme with respect to a range of pH in products that it could be used for. For this, they incubated the immobilized probe sensors in solutions with various pH levels, pH 3 through 9, for 10 days to evaluate the stability of that attachment in harsh conditions. As a positive control, the sensor was also incubated in NaOH. The results indicated that the sensor was stable between pH levels of 3 and 9. So as a recap for this first part of the experiment, um, they concluded that the Sentinel wrap is reliable and simple for the consumers. To test for the ability of the modified DNA enzyme to monitor target bacterium in real time, in the second part of the experiment, 
They investigated it by exposing the sensor to live E. coli cells and measuring the fluorescence intensity of the surface at different time points. The fluorescence intensity increased sevenfold after a two-hour incubation period, which does suggest that it is um, highly effective in measuring the exposure to contamination in real time, which um, is much quicker than traditional bacterial contamination testing. And the third part of the experiment tested specificity and sensitivity of the modified DNA zyme, RFD EC1 CLP, by incubating sensor films with several other gram-positive and gram-negative bacterial solutions for the same two-hour period. These results showed that the fluorescence signals were significantly higher in the presence of E. coli compared to that of the other bacteria. This proves the specificity of the modified DNA zyme to the target bacterial pathogen E. coli. Further testing also revealed that it is very capable of detecting small concentrations of the contaminant, which is something that the unmodified DNA zyme did have trouble with. And the final part of their testing was to determine whether the RFD EC1 COP DNA zyme could be used for continuous monitoring of contamination in packaged food products. For this, they conducted tests to ensure that no false positives could be given during a long-term incubation with food samples containing no contamination. After the many tests they described in the article, the results confirmed that the sensors are stable and reliable for at least two weeks. They concluded that the experimental results confirmed that, that the sensors using the modified DNA zyme possess great potential for use in food packaging and create surfaces that can specifically report the presence of target bacteria, which in this case was E. coli, in complex environments. They also add that there are low-cost attachments for cell phones that allow that user that allow users to detect fluorescent signals, which could have a great benefit on the public health foodborne illness rates. Finally, they propose that the sensing surface surfaces could be useful in ways beyond prepackaged foods, but also for food preparation service surfaces or in medical materials for dressing wounds. Now I know that was a lot to wrap your head around. But I think the important thing to take out of this is that foodborne illnesses are very, very common and they can be very dangerous. And this um, method for detecting bacteria seems to be, although it's not released yet, they haven't um, started using it on on common foods, um, prepackaged foods in our grocery stores yet, um, it could be a way to really push through and, you know, kind of come down hard on the food contamination that, that we see, you know, there are recalls that happen, um, you see them, you know, probably once a week 
And I think this is a really good way to kind of crack down on that and really let the, um, let sci the science of it kind of tell you what you're, what you're seeing. So I think it's, I think this is a really good product and, um, I'm kind of excited to see where it goes and how it will affect the rates of uh, foodborne illness across the country, perhaps across um, all, every country, you know, the whole world. So I think it's going to be a really cool product. Today, we began our discussion with the CDC's role in food contamination and the government's role in food safety. We specifically discussed E. coli and its association with many different diseases. E. coli was interesting to talk about because it is a bacteria common in our gastrointestinal tract, but also can produce serious infections in other areas of the body. E. coli contaminated feces can get into foods such as milk, vegetables, and water. Another section was dedicated to discussing bacterial detection methods. Immunoassays are used to test for the presence of shigatoxin. Cell counting can also be used to determine the concentration of an infection in the body. This helps healthcare providers determine how a person's immune system is dealing with an infection. Polymerase chain reactions, or PCR, can determine if a foodborne pathogen is present or not. PCR amplifies a specific target DNA sequence. And there are numerous amounts of bacterial detection methods, but today we went over some of the main methods used to identify foodborne pathogens. Another main topic from today was the discussion of the meat production process. Each step in this process opens up new opportunities for pathogens to invade the meat. And packaging is extremely important, and many packaging methods have been used throughout the years. Although packaging has come a long way, we can still improve in this aspect, and Sentinel wraps definitely help with this issue. So we discussed not only packaging methods, but storing and defrosting methods as well. And these steps are equally as important and must be controlled to produce healthy meat for consumers to eat. The fun fact section of our discussion explained how much contamination can be present in foods and why this is allowed. And I don't think I'll ever look at peanut butter the same ever again. Sentinel wrap is a revolutionary discovery and other methods of packaging have not provided the safety that Sentinel Wrap does. Sentinel Wrap provides a fluorescent mark on the packaging, which indicates that there is bacterial contamination present. This indicator can be read by a smartphone and is fairly reasonable to install. We would like to thank you for listening to our podcast on the topics of Biosensor Sentinel Wrap and food contamination. And now we would like to introduce you to a Sentinel Wrap Wrap that was created by your one and only Emily Vihari.
even if it's got a best before label. Do we really know if the food is still stable? You gotta change your mood about wrapping up your food. Cause you know what, dude? We're about to have a feud. If you get eat coal, I go ahead and wave bye-bye. Production of the patch is a real winner. Since the DNAs I'm generate through a printer. To read the patch, you can use your cell phone. Just scan the rep and it'll tell you what you want to know. Everybody needs to ditch the sniff test. Cause let me tell you, that ain't the best. Don't trust the fate of the expiration date. Come on, put on your thinking cap. Everybody should be using Sentinel rap. Be careful if you don't use the rap. You may just end up in a death trap. This is a Sentinel rap rap. Don't say it sounds bad. We work real hard on this podcast. Oh, cr-